MakeReel specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereel.co.uk slash activists. Ice fields are melting, coral reefs are bleaching, and a third of Pakistan is underwater. World leaders don't seem able to do anything, so how about you? What are you doing as a learning professional to fight climate change? Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. Now guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. Knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. Historian Adam Toos says we're in a polycrisis, lots of different crises happening at the same time. Others call it a permacrisis, but that doesn't seem right to me. Most of the crises won't be permanent. We found vaccines for COVID. Inflation will probably turn down in a year or two. Who knows, maybe the job market will sort itself out. But there is one crisis that really won't go away, the defining crisis of our era, global warming. Successive COPs have revealed a sad lack of will among the world's governments to make commitments that they'll actually stick by. So increasingly, people who aren't in government feel it's down to them to do something. Kids walk out of school and go on marches. Protesters glue themselves to roads. And every institution and organisation of any size, it seems, has an environmental policy now. Policies that it falls to HR and L&D and educators of all stripes to communicate. Learning professionals are intimately involved in combating the climate crisis. So what's the best way for them to do it? What will really have an effect? We asked a climate scientist. Fact facts. Robert Nichols is Professor and Director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, based at the University of East Anglia. He has contributed extensively to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, the body which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. His particular focus is the implications of sea level rise, especially on coastal areas. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers and is the co-editor of six books. Yes, a real live climate scientist. Nothing to do this time for Jay Curtis' set of themes, because really there was just one big theme to our discussion, the continued survival of humans as a species on this planet. But I think you'll find my conversation with Professor Nichols a lot less gloomy than the rather lugubrious introduction I've given it. You might even come away from this episode feeling slightly hopeful for our chances. Dr. Nichols, welcome to The Learning Hack. Oh, well, good morning. It's great to be here. While we're recording this, COP27 is underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, where Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, kicked off the conference by saying, we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Uh, reported all over the news. You've worked with the IPCC, a body which in the past has been accused both of underplaying the issue of climate change um, and by others of over-egging it. As a scientist, as a very distinguished climate scientist, uh, would you say that Mr. Guterres' words were over the top or did he get it about right? 
Well, I, I, I won't answer that directly. I suppose what, what I'd say is the world um, has, yeah, we've had the aspiration within the Paris Agreement of, you know, of keeping temperatures below two degrees and hopefully nearer to 1.5. And I really think the 1.5 target probably is out the window the way we're going at the moment. Uh, and, and, and even keeping temperatures below two degrees based on you know the way people are behaving is and the way, way governments are behaving um, is also going to be extremely challenging and difficult. So at the present time, we're probably heading to somewhere near three degrees if we kind of continue as, as we are. And that assumes that all the pledges that have been made are actually followed through. So a lot Talk is cheap. The action always is a bit more costly. Um, yeah. So, um, so I think that he's capturing in his words the fact that um, the governments of the world have signed up to the Paris Agreement, but then the actual delivery of it um, is uh, seems seems quite uh, elusive um, where we are at the moment, and much more action is needed to get to the sort of two degrees or, or somewhere close. Um, to to the two degrees. Um, in terms of climate hell, I mean, I think he's really just communicating the fact that you know, the that that we're, we're, we're governments are ignoring this issue. Really, there's a collective um, lack of action, and it goes across the piece. Really, I mean, I'm not going to point fingers at particular countries. I think really it is a collective, it is a collective problem. But he's right to, I think, use that kind of language to point out this this um, significant um, mismatch, should we say, between what countries have stood up for uh, in, at Paris and what they're actually doing. It, it, it feels terrible, actually, to say that the, the, the thing we're worried about now is the three degrees, because they're always one of my favourite groups. But what is the what is the effect of this three degrees going to look like, do you, th- do you think? If the... If the 1.5 is really out of the window, what can we expect to see if governments continue in the current path? Well, I think, you know, as climate, I mean, there's different, there's, there's, there's talk of tipping points. So I think this is this is the worrying thing about climate change or about really any, I suppose, any kind of change, really, that as you kind of turn up the, the, uh, the, the volume, shall we say, um, things suddenly start to change dramatically. So, you, you know, you, for example, um, coral reefs, at about 1.5 degrees will probably um, start to um, die very widely around the world because they can't right now when when you get a very high temperature coral reefs bleach they uh, the corals live in a symbiotic relationship with a sort of with an algae within their within their bodies and they actually push the algae out uh, and, and then um, they they then hopefully reabsorb it or if they don't they die and that pro with with a little bit more warming, they're living at the top of their temperature threshold. It would seem that we're going to see the loss of living coral very widely, not everywhere, because there'll be some places where coral can can continue to live, but that there'll be a really significant change. So that is maybe one of the tipping points that one is talking about. And obviously, I mean, a world a world with a great loss in coral reefs that sounds a pretty awful world um, mm. to be living in. Um, as we as we go, as we get warmer, so we get we get more and more changes um, 
of of, of this type. I think it, it's fair to be said that some of these changes, you know, not all of them are, are, are perfectly understood. So there's a bit of uncertainty around this. But I think we would see um, increasing melting of uh, of land based ice. So we'd see we'd see uh, more sea level rise. We'd see. Um, Plants and animals that live at the tops of mountains, you know, they they got nowhere to go as the world warms. So, so extinctions of uh, and, and significant movements of of, of species um, to higher latitudes. Um, this would happen in the ocean, the ocean as well as the ocean would be warming as well um, as the land. And I think at a human scale, heat stress. I think probably there right now in the world. Um, there's nowhere that's really um, uninhabitable by by humans um, in the sense that, you know, there's nowhere where it gets so hot that it would kill you. We're now reaching though, a threshold where the, if the wet bulb temperature rises above 35 degrees centigrade, um, if, if that happens, um, humans die through um, through heat stress. You just can't lose enough heat. So yeah. th that's also a, a concern that certain parts of the world, you know, these temperatures have been observed now for short periods in small places, and, and, and they weren't observed in the past. So this is we're talking about areas in the southeast United States, in India, in Pakistan, in, in, in sort of North Africa, um, where these temperatures, maybe also in places like Thailand, um, where these temperatures could be sustained for um, significant parts of the day. So that means that um, people couldn't work outside. It would be fatal. Mm. And so, um, you know, you'd have to retreat into air conditioning, which is maybe in itself, obviously, an energy using technology. Yeah. Um, but that would be the only way to um, to survive. So, um, so I, I, I think I've just given you a flavour there. I mean, it's 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 a world that's going to be quite different to the world that we live in today. And I think a less desirable world, but a world I particularly want to live in. Your particular specialisation, which you touched on there, is the consequences of climate change for coastal areas. We perhaps hear less about this in the media than other aspects of warming. Should we be more attentive to that? To, to what extent is this a future risk, something away uh, away in the future or something that's going to devastate the coral reefs? Well, is that going to affect people who are you know just trying to get to work on the M25? Um, or is it something that's already having catastrophic effects? I mean, when it comes to coastal things, I should say I'm sitting here in Brighton on a, in a coastal town, not too worried about um, uh, flooding. We get quite a bit of flooding where, where I am anyway, because the water comes down off the downs. But um, to, how, how can you bring this kind of closer to people understanding the the, the the risks to them well i think um the big the big effect on, in coastal areas is sea level rise so mm. uh, sea levels are rising at the present time so it is something that's happening now so um sea levels were right sort of rose something like 20 centimeters in the uh in the 20th century they're now rising at about 4.4 millimeters per year at the present time due to based on satellite measurements why are they rising because the ocean is the ocean is warming so it's expanding so that's you know the yeah. same mass occupies a larger volume as it warms up yeah. and land-based ice is melting so the small glaciers in the like the the alps is, is a place where glaciers are in retreat but particularly concerning is greenland and um, Antarctica and sort of Greenland in the last few decades has become a significant source of um, sea level rise. So the, the Greenland ice sheet is is uh, is is uh, 
contracting. And there's concerns now in Antarctica now, it's also uh, a source of um, sea level rise. In the 20th century, the main sources were thermal expansion and the small glaciers. So mm. we are seeing these big ice sheets coming into play uh, in terms of, of, of the rise. So four millimetres per year, in itself, a year of sea level rise isn't worth worrying about. Four millimetres, you can barely notice it, but it accumulates. I think that's that's the... that's the, the, the So it's, a, it's a, something that steadily builds. So oh, if that was sustained for... Um, 100 years that's 40 centimeters of change or that's more of a foot in the old-fashioned way of talking about things um and that does start to exacerbate well it does, that exacerbates flooding in coastal areas it encourages erosion it pushes salt water further inland in the case in the case of brighton 40 40 centimeters of sea level rise would, would be increasing the sort of the flood risk on the coast it would be causing the beaches that you that protect you that you sort of probably you use for your recreation in the yep. summer. Um, Not again. For, it would cause those to erode and, and reduce. So so it's it, it's having adverse effects. Probably the more important places though, actually, the Brighton. If you come round to East Anglia or into London, there are huge areas or not so far from you, just around Eastbourne, um, Pevensey levels. There are large areas where, which are very low near to sea, along the coast, where the sea, if it actually floods, could go far inland and flood large numbers of properties. So that that is probably the main concern um, in terms of what, what we're worried about, that this really could um, uh, impact large numbers of people, probably today, 200 million people live in the what we call the coastal floodplain. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as time goes forward, the number of people in the coast is going up because people there's more people and people tend to be moving to the coast. So we, there is a growth in population um, globally, I'm talking here. But uh, um, and then so sea level is making those all those people more at risk of of, of flooding and, and catastrophe. We're currently in an energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine, having just come out of the crisis that was the pandemic. People in the UK are turning off their radiators. They're putting on an extra jumper. We don't know yet how wide ranging or long term the effects of, of, of all this, these price rises in energy might be. Uh, would you expect that the energy crisis could be a driver for more green behaviours and investment in renewables? In, in other words, people start to kind of look seriously at reducing their energy consumption just purely to lower their bills and governments start to move towards um, renewables? Or is this more likely to be a statistically unimportant blip, do you think? I think it's a great opportunity to sort of think about, you know, energy security. I think one of the, one of the ways to really to really answer this, this challenge of reducing greenhouse gas emissions is to try and merge agendas. So I think this is exactly your kind of your question is talking about that the energy security uh, issue can merge with reducing emissions. So I think it's, it's, a, I think in some ways it's, it's an opportunity. It's really made people think about energy in a way that it, I think last year or, you know, but before the Ukraine invasion, people took it for granted, didn't they? Really? You just you, 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 you press the button and, you, and, and, and heat, heat, you know, the, your radiators are warm or hot water comes out of the tap. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's a great opportunity. But I think we shouldn't just assume it will happen. It equally could um, fuel people who say we have immediate problems. 
this climate change stuff's all far in the future. You get you get short termism. We're seeing a lot of that, aren't we, around the energy crisis as well? You know, we need to keep these coal-fired power stations going so that we've got you know enough kind of electricity coverage. Well, absolutely. Well, well, Germany has stopped phasing out coal-fired power stations as, as a result. In, in Britain, I think we're we're bringing them back on. Um, in sorry, in Germany, it's, maybe it's nuclear as well. I was thinking they've kept their nuclear power stations going going on a bit further uh, than they, than than they planned. So, and I, and I think using coal in the short term is fine. I mean, but the point is, it's you don't want it to become a long-term locked-in solution to this problem, mm. which is so. So, I think I think there are great opportunities there, but one has to see the dangers. That it could actually mean that it, it sort of could derail these activities. Um, I think that you know what we see renewables in Britain have grown as a as a proportion of our energy, um, and that uh, I think the uh, economics of that now is is really pushing it. I mean, wind and solar have become much much cheaper than people expected, much more quickly. And I suppose that, therefore, so I, I am, well, my background's in engineering, so I suppose I have, a, I, 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 it, I, I do think that we need, technology is going to be a big part of the solutions that we, 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 we um, in, in this space. And I think that um, it's really trying to make it a no-brainer that these types of solutions are the right way to go. So back to your question, I think this courage's reflection on, on, on these issues and I think it's really important to try and target that so it's pushing us in the right direction in the long term and recognising there will be some people who will be wanting to push in a different direction. So they, there has, there's always politics in, in, these, in, in, in everything that's done in society. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think, so you have, so, and I think it's, all, it's easy to think sometimes that a, on any issue that the battle is won. And I think it never is. I think it's it's always an ongoing debate, and there's always going to be somebody saying we should be doing something different. And you, I think the fight has to always be had, and you always have to be ready to to, to to remind people why you're following a certain route. Staying with those themes for 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 just a little bit before we move on, I'd like to talk more about engineering and engineered solutions. But first of all, on on this theme, we recently learned during the incredibly short reign of our last Prime Minister, that there is something called the Anti-Growth Coalition. Um, are you a member? Is one question. The, the serious point, is there an inbuilt contradiction between our fixation on growing GDP year on year and the need to rein back on climate impact? Is there, you know, when you look at this kind of coldly, really, is there a head switch we need to make here and to stop focusing so much on growth. That's a very interesting question. That's much bigger than climate change, really, because it goes to the heart of what society's kind of goals are. Because I mean, certainly we live in a growth-focused uh, world at the moment, and that's it's 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 the key um, indicator. And I suppose, really, I suppose thinking of indicators that look at people's well-being. I mean, maybe we should be trying to think about what um, what are the things that uh, Give people happiness, make them feel good, give them a great life. If you if you like, so so I so I'm not I wouldn't say I'm against growth, but I am uh, interested in this idea of how, of how can we um, 
deliver what people want. I mean, I've done a lot of work in developing countries, in places like Bangladesh in particular, is a place I've worked in a lot, mm. but I've been elsewhere as well. And they, these places are clearly quite poor. They need, they do need, uh, I think, um, they do need um, uh, growth in in, in, this, in the traditional sense. So I think we have to look at that. The, there's, there's issues around distribution of wealth, um, and also, um, but then look, looking more widely at what um, what can actually make people happy, give a sense of well-being. Um, it's, but I, I think the world, though, is very fixated on growth, and I, and I think it'll be a brave politician who kind of goes, can you take it, particularly in a democracy, to, to actually follow these sort of strategies? So I think we have to sort of look both, so, so, so sort of intellectually, I think it's very interesting to think about these other ways of moving forward. Um, and it makes sense that I think at some point people are more more wealth I've read makes you happy up to a point, and then fifty thousand pounds a year. I think it was a study a while ago. I mean, several years ago now, so that might have changed. We've yeah. got a bit of inflation now, but um, a, a study I think uh, said that you once you had fifty thousand pounds a year, you were happy. Anything larger than that only made you know made very little addition to your. Yeah, I, well, it's ab- absolutely so. I mean, there is there is this sort of thresh again threshold where where really it doesn't have much effect uh, and it's other things that could make you could, could, could affect your quality of life i'm very interested in exploring this but i think that there has to be quite a i mean really this is maybe the interesting thing about climate it, it opens up a lot of societal questions about mm. how we organize ourselves what our values are what we really want to achieve in the longer term and right now we follow it we're in a very individualistic world where we give well we we give um uh, great freedom to in, sort of individuals, you know, Elon Musk. I mean, we all know the name, and and, and they're having a huge amount of effect on us. And there are other, and we and the world allows that. And I suppose that's brought some great things to the world. But I think it is it is worthwhile questioning that and seeing yeah. where do we want to go. But the world is going to keep changing. I mean, the I think we want to move forward because I think at times when I hear about. Um, growth i sometimes get a sense that some people are nostalgic for something that we've lost and i think we're on a journey to somewhere new so uh, so so I, in, in that sense i think there will be we need to change and grow uh, into the future but quite what that growth means could be different to what it has meant in the past yeah interesting answer and and it may be the question goes well even beyond politics to human psychology you know is, is this kind of urge to increase your own GDP year on year, maybe a kind of part of, of, of human psychology that, that may be indispensable. I'm sure libertarians would say, say it is. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet who uses it? despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy. I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. 
Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast, and we really value the help and advice we've had from them, and they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. This is a learning podcast, and I took the opportunity at a recent learning conference, uh, the autumn session of Learning Technologies Conference, to crowdsource my questions to you, because I I felt a bit at sea, (laughs) Uh, no pun intended. What would you ask a climate scientist? I said to everybody, and for the rest of this interview, I'd like to put a few of the questions that came back to you. Um, And the first of those, how much confidence should we put in the idea that engineering solutions uh, going to get us out of trouble. Well, I think I think and I think I said in an earlier answer. I think you know, technology is going to be <laughs> yeah. Tech, well, I'm an engineer, but technology is I think going to be a big part of the solution. Um, I think when we are we are seeing engineering pulling it coming into play. I mean, all the renewables. I mean, that's these are all new technologies. All the windmills. I mean, you've got windmills to the south of you in Brighton, haven't you? I, I, I'm not, not sure the, what it's called, Absolutely. but I've. I've seen them, uh, and, um, and and solar as well. So these are all so technology. There is is stepping up and providing new options. So I think I'm not quite sure if they're if in this question that's what they're getting at. But there's also engineering to adapt as well. I suppose that's the and maybe they're talking about that. And certainly, I think engineering can help us with adapt, adaptation. I mean, yeah. like the Thames Barrier, for example, is is a kind of iconic piece of engineering that keeps London dry at the moment. Um, and the challenge, I suppose, to engineering solutions is can they keep pace with with the rates of change? So that that that's maybe the key kind of the key kind of question. I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to depend entirely on engineering. I think that, but but I think engineering has a quite an important role, or maybe a fundamental role to play. In, in finding in finding in finding solutions, um, and I think that needs to, but that needs to be put into a societal context so that we're solving societal problems rather than you have a widget that's searching for something it can solve. <laughs> yeah, I think partly behind this question is I think I know the person who posed it. There's this thing that you know he's worried about an attitude where people say, well, let's not worry too much about this because we're very clever. And we can invent technological solutions, I don't know, nap arming the clouds to provide more cloud cover or something to, you know, to 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 stop the warming. We'll come up with something that will get us out of trouble, have a get out free jail card due to our en- engineering um, know how. And that kind of uh, creates a, a certain level of complacency. I think. Oh, I think. Um, right. OK. Thank you for the clarification. I think we should not put confidence in that type of engineering, you know, that sort of the get out of jail free card, <laughs> essentially, that I that I could just keep on going as I am. No, I think that really as a society, we've got to engage with this. This is a fundamental challenge. Um, you know, there's the term geoengineering, where actually you try and modify climate to make it cooler. Yeah. And for example, um, uh, uh if you emit um, aerosols, um, which are like coal-fired power stations, actually, they produce carbon dioxide, which cause global warming. But the aerosols they put out actually cause global cooling because they actually because um, um, so, so, um, sulfur dioxide actually 
uh, radiates back some uh, sunlight, and also it creates clouds. So there, there are there are effects, but that aerosol effect is quite short term. It doesn't persist for very long. But it, but you can influence the climate to make it cooler. And people have talked about mirrors in space, where you yes. try and actually absorb, I don't know, five percent of the sun's input or something like that. And you know, a certain amount, and then you can lower the Earth's temperature um, in that way. I, I, but I think really. As soon as you start to think about that kind of geoengineering, who governs that, for hmm. example? I mean, presumably, you know, uh, it, it would appeal to some, but um, I think that there will always be winners and losers in any intervention. Um, can, can we do it, first of all, be a question? But then even if you can, the governance. So I think really the key thing is to get, is to really act now, let's, mitigate and reduce global warming and um and make the problem if you like manageable i think we haven't going to have to deal with some global warming um but let's let, let's work hard and bring the problem down and though, for those that ignore it i think think of their kids and grandkids you're bequeathing them a world that you probably wouldn't want to live in yeah of course and those of us who have had households of um teenagers um, we'll, we'll know that it matters more to people who are going to live in the future in a way than to old people like me. So learning and development departments have a big responsibility for helping to further the green policies of their organisations with the workforce. This is kind of part of an increasing um, job for HR to do with attitudes and values within an organisation. Um, and, and green is a big part of that. What is the most useful thing you think that learning departments can get across to their learners or you know their em the employees of their organizations about so about 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 responding to climate change yes i think really um i think the uh, possibly almost dealing with the the previous question actually i think that it, we're all in this together and that the really it, it does human human behavior matters i think really so and the organization so i think I suppose really it's important that the the company organization is doing something. So I think you know it's not just mm. you're not just exploiting it down to your, your and not just saying it's doing something. You know, not just kind of making right kind of greenwashy noises, but actually doing it exactly. Um, and but but then also I suppose in, I suppose empowering their workforce also to be doing things outside of work so i think it's about it's 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 20 it's 24 7 isn't it really this it's about it's about it's about everything that everything that we do i i think also um it's also important probably i think that i, I think also keeping the political processes feet to the fire is quite important so mm. i think actually I mean, well, learning and development departments maybe shouldn't really campaign, but I'm just thinking that I'm just saying I think a very powerful force for action is people who care, who vote. I mean, that keeps it on the agenda. I mean, you know, basically that that means that means that governments keep funding R and D in this area. They they they, they keep supporting. We have the Climate Change Act in Britain, which you know. So so basically, the government has quite a high degree of scrutiny in the UK compared, probably, to almost any other government in the world, where the CCC review what they're doing and and make noises about what, what make comments on what um, could be done to enhance this action. And so, 
all these processes need to be supported. They could be swept away in the future. And I think I made the point about you, you don't think you've won the war. You, mm. you, so I think that's also quite another important thing. Maybe I'm going beyond learning and development departments, though. So come back to me if I haven't really answered the question. No, I think that that, that is a, a really useful response. And it, and it kind of leans on to, to the next one. I mean, you know, just pause as an aside. It's a very interesting time to be doing this interview because not only have we got COP27 running, but uh, people on the M25 motorway in the UK um, have been having trouble kind of getting where they want to go to because there are, there are big protests and the, um, the, the stop oil movement and people gluing themselves to to buildings and roads and uh, assaulting artworks and so on. So the next question was, will grassroots activities really have much of an impact? And I, I, I don't know the question here, but I'm guessing that has more to do with things like that, with stop oil and um, I mean, I, I, I think... I think those. I think those are very important. I'm getting. It's. It's. It. To my mind, it's part of. This is important. You know, and 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 it, it's make. It's raising it. Um. Uh. It's raising it. Um. All the time. So put in, in, in a way that you can't ignore it. So I think. So I no. I. I commend. Um. The, the, these activities really to to um to really um engage and, and raise 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 these issues um because as i say i think it's really keeping it in the public discourse i think that's really that's very important because it's very well it's a, i would say it's very easy to go to sleep but there's always that danger of um of, of the issue falls off the boiler so i think I, th I think um grassroots activities uh i think the main value to my mind is really that they they, they bring it to to the wider society really i think that's that 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 has, that, that has the the big effect and i think probably you know getting people thinking about where their pensions invested and things like this there's probably there's there's, there's quite a lot of of um people power really in how we maybe think about investing our money you know and you know and, and so the, the these the, i think some of the you know, stop, stop oil i mean that, that's sort of um coming up with some well, exactly, raising those kinds of questions about where where where, where is your pension held, for example. Uh, the, the objection is always raised. Uh, the, there's the danger that people are actually alienated by, you know, interfering with their right to get in their car and get to where they want to go at, at, at a predictable time. And that comes up a lot, actually. I listened to a podcast, The News Agents, last night, and um, one of the presenters was apoplectic about the... The, the idea of it and actually thinks it turns people off. But then Peter Tatchell says it's really all about the, um, you know, the awareness. So there, there's a back and forth. We have to get to the end of these uh, L&D questions. I'm very grateful to everybody who submitted uh, a, a question here. And this last one, I'm going to quote verbatim um, because I think you need to really. Uh, thanks, Leo, for this one. Uh, who says, I'm in two minds. One screams, we're screwed, aren't we? The other is, I'd love to see some empowering practical example of what is working and improving. You, you see what I'm doing here? Uh, we're, we're beginning to close out now. Uh, this is your cue to say something optimistic. Well, yeah. Well, I think um, if we look at uh, coastal flooding in the UK, in 1953, over 300 people were killed in a coastal flood on the East Coast. 
Um, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's not forgotten in the places where people died. Places like Canvey Island, Jaywick were two no, hot Canvey spots. Island, well, I grew up around there. Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's yeah. A lot of people died there in 1953. Um, that was a that was a big coastal flood. Today, I mean, we've had we've had events like that more recently, and they've almost not noticed because we've got much better flood defences. We have things like the Thames Barrier. We actually have ability to warn about these flood events. So I, I, so it's one example where we, we there was a problem and we have actually um, dealt with it quite effectively up till today. Sea levels are rising, so that means that we can't take our eye off the ball. We've got to keep on working hard to make sure that we can. But, um, but I'm just saying it's an, it's an example where in many, in many ways, down to technology. I mean, computer models allow us now to. We have very good weather forecasts. We can. Mm. We now have effectively sea forecasts of the height of the sea, so that we. Um, the Thames Barrier has to be. They, they, these forecasts are used to close the Thames Barrier at the right time. Um, so, that's a, that's an example of where um, we've had made huge progress, and. A lot of people say, oh, we, we have to have transformative adaptation, um, almost like we never have. And I, I often say, well, we've had transformative adaptation. What I just described to you is that yeah. we have to keep on doing it, um, but, but let's not lose sight of the fact that we have been able to deal with, um, deal with issues in the past. I think also, you know, back to the we're screwed, aren't we? Well, if we've done nothing about um, uh, emissions, we're probably heading for four, five, six degrees. So we're heading for three degrees. It's actually, we have made a big difference to our expectation. It's it, it raises a lot. It raises lots of issues, and I talked about that in one of my earlier responses. But we have brought it down, and if we keep pressure on our governments to keep on acting, then it can be brought down further. So I think I'm an optimist, um, and you know I'm uh, I think that. Uh, the important thing is not to give up and keep moving forward. I think that's a great message. Lastly, where can people go to find out more about your work? Well, if you go to the, I suppose, to the, I, I work for the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. And so basically I have a, um, there's a page on me there where they can read about that and they'll see some of the, some of the things that I'm doing. And then also they'll find some actually some recent news pieces actually um, on, 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 on the Tyndall website as well. So that would probably, I, I think, be the best place to start. And then obviously they can always drop me an email if they have a particular interest. Okay, we'll put those links in show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I think it, it's been really interesting for me and I, I think valuable. And I hope all the questioners will feel that they've had their questions well answered as well. Thank you. Thank you. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to our guest and to all our sponsors. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Our next episode of The Learning Hack is the last of the series before our much needed break for the Christmas holidays. And we'll be celebrating with a look back at the themes that have dominated the past two years pretty tumultuous two years i think you'll agree in the world of learning till then stay curious learning people now i finally get it